Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage, Episode 1, Tolkien, World War I, and Shelob's Farts. I'm sure many people listening to this podcast are already familiar with the plots of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. The books were already very popular in the D&D community prior to the release of the massively successful movies, and for those who are not familiar with them, I'll give a quick summary. In The Hobbit, Bilbo the Hobbit goes on an adventure with some dwarves and a wizard named Gandalf. They fight goblins in the mountains, spiders and elves in the forest, and slay a dragon to secure its treasure. After claiming the treasure, the heroes must fight to defend it from elves and men, and then they have to team up with the elves and the men against an orc army, and some eagles get involved. It's called the Battle of Five Armies. Um, and in the end, Bilbo and the dwarves succeed, but not without losing about half of their company. During this adventure, Bilbo finds a ring of invisibility that turns out to be very important in the sequel series, The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is split into three books, that tell the story of the good people of Middle-earth, hobbits, dwarves, men, and elves, uh, trying to destroy Bilbo's invisibility ring, which is called the One Ring. And this ring contains the soul of Sauron, the Dark Lord of Middle-earth, and destroying the One Ring will kill the big bad guy. Unfortunately, the ring has a corrupting influence on whoever holds it. Bilbo's nephew Frodo takes the ring, and his journey is to go to the volcanic mountain, Mount Doom, in the evil land of Mordor to destroy it. He's helped by his friends and a bunch of bodyguards along the way. Um, this is called the Fellowship of the Ring. And the Fellowship um, eventually splits up, and they do a lot of different things to fight Sauron. They fight some undead wraiths, they kill orcs and trolls, they run away from demons, they convince tree people to help them in the war, they fight a bunch of big battles against orcs, they reforge ancient swords, they sneak past guards, and, and on and on and on. Lots of fun adventures. It's three books, so it's got a lot of stuff going on in it. And in the end, they succeed. The One Ring is destroyed, Middle-earth is freed of evil, and everyone lives happily ever after. So with that quick summary out of the way, I'd like to introduce my guest for the day, my best friend, Will. Hello, um, I'm William. I've known Isaac for uh, 25 years? Mm, something like that? Not quite that much, but yeah, close, close 20, to 25. Whatever. Um, so I've been the victim in, of many of his campaigns, and um, uh, I'm excited to... Uh, join the first podcast where I know that in, in many years people will look back and say, mm, not their best work. Well, um, yeah. That's... And so, so uh, I'm excited to talk about Tolkien today. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we started playing in, um, I want to say 2000, 2001. No, it was 2000. Yeah. Summer of They're playing 2000, but I'd known you a little, a couple years before that, but yeah. Well, like half a year before that, but. Yeah, anyway. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, today we're talking about Tolkien. Um, so some people might know this, but not everybody. But Tolkien is like the, the origin point for Dungeons and & Dragons. Um, and by extension, a lot of other role-playing games that were based off of the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing system are at least inspired by the, the idea of playing role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. Um, That's right. And and really, the, the, to be more specific, the... Um, Role-playing genre mostly came from from Lord of the Rings. Well, I guess you can see some influence from The Hobbit, but really, really Lord of the Rings. Um, not uh, for most systems. Not The Hobbit because it's a little bit um, sillier, and not The Cimmerillion because it's very boring. Yes, yes. Um, um, I mean, you could argue that role-playing games would have still developed; they just would have been different. Like people were playing like. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Cops they, and robbers, wouldn't have had or cowboys and Indians, or stuff like that. They were playing those games, like you know, centuries beforehand. So the idea of taking on a role and right. playing pretend with your friends isn't anything new. Um, and it was just more the specific idea for how role playing games, as we conceive them now, for pen and paper ones, came out of Lord of the Rings. Um, That's right. So I wanted to give a little background on Tolkien before we got into the talking about the setting. Um, so Tolkien uh, fought in World War One, um, and prior to that, he was already like an, an imaginative little, little boy. 
um, who made up languages with his cousins and uh, was loving to write stories and play pretend and read all sorts of um, fairy tales and myths and legends and stuff. Um, during World War One, uh, Tolkien didn't cite this specifically as an inspiration for himself, but many soldiers during World War One read a book called Bullfinch's Mythology, which was a translation of Latin and Greek classics to make them more accessible for people who don't know Latin and Greek. Um, so like for non-college educated people would basically be what that was for. Um, many of the soldiers in the trenches of World War One read the Bullfinch's Mythology, the, the English. It's an English translation. I know there were other language groups in the war, but... Um, so that, that book provided a lot of inspiration for the other soldiers around Tolkien who started talking about those stories. And Tolkien started thinking, you know, we have these classical myths um, and Bullfinch's mythology also has Norse myths and um, Near East myths and some Indian myths and stuff like that. Um, and there's also fairy tales, which are largely German and French. Uh, but Tolkien was thinking, why don't we have any English stories? Um, and we do sort of have King Arthur, but uh, for those that know the literary history of King Arthur, it's actually a French story that was written about um, England and Wales. And is not really English in origin. Right. Uh, also, just to clarify, um, Tolkien, I, I, I may, may quite likely read um, some relevant materials during the war, but he also was an English literature major at Oxford before the war, or, well, actually during the war for part of it. But, mm. um, so that's probably where a lot of his um, uh, Norse, um, sort of some of the Norse influence and, and, and that uh, came from. Yeah, yeah. The Bullfinch was definitely not his initial inspiration. It's just that that would have been priming other people around him during the war to start talking about those stories. Um, and because sure. they were bored out of their minds. Yes, yes. So, like, you're, you're sitting there for two months until someone tells you to go die by jumping over the trench. So, you know, you read stories and you talk to them with your friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh, much as we're doing now. Didn't you figure out rotations until later in the war, but we don't need to get into that. Right. Um, so <laughs> Tolkien, when he served, actually was part of those rotations um, and technically a casualty of the war. Uh, he got trench fever and was sent back home. Um, so he actually only served um, on the front and in those rotations for four months. Um, at least I think it was rotations oh. at that point. Maybe you know better than I do, Will. Uh. I don't know. They didn't. They didn't have rotations in Glimbley. <laughs> okay. They couldn't get the troops there. Um, uh, from what I read, there were rotations. So he he served in it was the the Somme. Is that right? That was the battle he was part of. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, served in the Somme and um, had a fairly undistinguished career. Yes. Um, so he went back to Oxford um, and still loved stories and. Uh, languages and English, so he wanted to create a English myth, um, and that's where The Hobbit came. Um, so he he wrote The Hobbit um, and formed a literary group at Oxford. Well, it was part of forming one. I wouldn't say it was just him. Uh, called the Inklings, where um, there are many more well-known English authors, but the two that are more internationally known uh, for the Inkling group is Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, um, among other great books that um, I like a lot. But uh, C.S. Lewis is also well-known for being super, super Christian, and all of his writings are Christian. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm actually, he's like, like, I'm not as big a fan of C.S. Lewis as some, but he's still obviously very good. Um, yes, yes, I, I would uh, I mean, if you want to read the screw tape letters, letters, it's good. Um, very Christian, but still very good. I like it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like the Chronicles of Narnia is still good, except for like the last book is kind of weird. But um, <laughs> um, like he's still like a top five English fictional author of of the um, uh, of the um, 20th century. He's still good. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so then he wrote The Hobbit. Big success. Um, then he wrote the Silmarillion. Uh, his uh, the, the Inklings and his editor convinced him that it was unpublishable. Uh, so then he wrote the Lord of the Rings and um, became internationally famous. Uh, and 
then a couple years later, he died. Uh, yeah, 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 basically. Yeah, I mean, depending on how you frame a couple of years, I think it was 20 years, but... Yeah, it was about 20 years. Um, so, uh, what happened after that is uh, war games had existed for a long time. I mean, war games have also existed basically as long as children have been playing with little figurines that represent soldiers. Um, and they got more... I would say standardized after World War One, where people started wanting to represent these huge battles where there were tons and tons of troops. Um, so people had all of these games for World War One and World War Two, um, and some of them were like, "Well, let's make something for a you know earlier battle." So there was a game called Chainmail that was used to represent um, pre-gunpowder combat. Um, for you know, tons of units. So like you have one little little soldier guy on the board, but he actually represents more like a hundred soldiers or something like that. Right. Um, and the creators for Chainmail, um, who our beloved Gary Jack- Guy Jacks was one of them, um, also came up with some extra rules for playing um, Lord of the Rings using Chainmail characters. So you have like one person would play the fellowship and the other person on the other side would play the orcs of Moria. Um, so the fellowship dude just has nine little units and he's supposed to keep eight of them alive because Gandalf dies in that battle. Um, and then the orc of Moria guy has, you know, 200 orcs and a Balrog and maybe two trolls or something. I don't know. Um, so then that way they can have a little battle where the the orcs are trying to stop the eight people from escaping the mines and the guy playing the fellowship is trying to get the, the eight people to get through the mines. And I'm saying guy because this was almost an exclusively male hobby until maybe the 90s. <laughs> Pretty recently, yeah. Yeah. Um, still kind of is, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, that's... That's well, where we're at. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. So that uh, that then developed into um, Dungeons and Dragons, where instead of just having it be a set battle, instead it's a, a series of battles where you get to choose and develop your own character instead of it just being Gandalf has a sword and can cast light or whatever. You know, he doesn't actually cast that much magic. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's... That's where Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's work turns into D&D um, and why we chose this as a starting point because, you know, first podcast, let's have it be about the quasi-first uh, campaign setting for playing Dungeons & Dragons on. Right, so, um, let's... So the question with um, Tolkien as a campaign setting is, like, what... Like, what part of Tolkien are you using? Because obviously, um, we mentioned The Hobbit, but there's Lord of the Rings, but also there's, like, with, with the Cimmerillion, you have a lot of areas you can sort of pick. Mm-hmm. And, um... Uh, right, so Tolkien's, obviously the, Tolkien split the, the history of his world into um, four, well, depending on how you count it. He said seven ages, because he thought he would eventually write enough stuff to take it from... Uh, like his initial like Genesis kind of myths um, into something that would be like elves are living secretly among modern humans or something like that. Um, and he he uh, also stopped doing that writing because he's Christian and he found that it started to get a lot darker the closer he got to modern history. So he decided to not write sequels to Lord of the Rings. Um. So, uh, I said seven ages, but more realistically, he only wrote three ages. Um, and something that there you can sort of, there's a little bit of in his writings in the Silmarillion about the fourth age and also a little bit about the before the first age. Um, so the, the first age is, uh, really, uh, the ages are mostly separated by the defeat of a dark Lord. (laughs) Um, so, uh, for those that are familiar with the Lord of the Rings story, there's um, this evil guy called Sauron, but he had a master called Morgoth. Um, 
Morgoth is one of the Valar, who are basically mm, gods, or maybe uh, in the Christian version of the story, because there is a god called Eru. Um, the Valar are more like archangels. So Morgoth is the evil archangel, so effectively uh, Lucifer or Satan. Um, so Morgoth is trying to corrupt creation because he's jealous of God's power to create. Um, and that uh, leads to all the other Valar not liking him uh, and eventually defeating him and exiling him at the end of the first age. Um, then we get to the second age where Morgoth has a attendant, a normal angel being, but also very strong, called Sauron. Um, and Sauron realizes that Morgoth was trying to use like direct force, so Sauron starts trying to trick people, and he makes uh, a bunch of rings to try and control the different races of Middle-earth. Except hobbits, because I don't know why. Also, I assume he just didn't care about hobbits that much. Yeah. Um, Tolkien never wrote like where hobbits came from in the story. So like, elves are the first creation, and men are the second, and dwarves were created by accident. And orcs were made by Morgoth corrupting elves. Uh, but hobbits are just sort of there. I mean, hobbits got a hobbit, right? Yeah. Um, then all the other monsters were made by Morgoth because he likes making evil monsters. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's his thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that, like, uh, plants and animals and ants were made by the, the other Valar. Um,. I'm getting a little off topic here, but... Uh, okay, so second age, she makes all the rings. Um, the elves discover that the rings are corrupted, so they don't wear the three that were made for them. Um, and then Sauron uses his one ring to control the humans, to corrupt the dwarves. He's not able to fully corrupt the dwarves because they're too tough. Um, but he's able to make them sort of neutral. He turns them into Switzerland where they're just hiding in their mountains and holding on to their gold. Or starting to get in. things. Yeah, we're getting into the World War One par- parallels here. Um so the dwar- the dwarves are basically Swiss. Sort of. <laughs> uh so uh Sauron's eventually defeated by elves and men working together. Um and they they cut off the ring, but because he's a powerful angel he doesn't actually die. Um, so then Lord of the Rings is about the end of the third age where Sauron comes back and then they destroy the ring, which, um, basically kills Sauron for good. Um, and then everyone is happy in the fourth age and everything's fine forever and ever afterwards. Because Tolkien, as you said, didn't get to write any more books. <laughs> uh, yeah, so from what I read, he started writing an, uh, a sequel to the, the Return of the King about Aragorn's... Aragorn. Wrong fantasy series. Um, about Aragorn's son, or grandson or something. Um, but he ran into this issue where, like, Sauron's dead... So he needs a new villain, and the villain inevitably has to be just a a normal human. You know, went from like archangel to angel, and now just a normal right. human. Um, and he felt like that was just sort of too depressing of a story of just people hurting each other instead of it being some sort of you know evil demonic force that was causing suffering in people's lives. Um, so again, like he was too he was too Christian to tell a story like that. It just depressed him and he thought it was like not the kind of heroic fantasy that he wanted to to bring through in, out with his writing. Yeah. And remember yeah. he was trying to write like yeah, English English mythology where like people were attracted to this world of like you know, the Black and white, and uh, a happy ending. Yeah, I mean, you wanted to write sort of a. I mean, not not that all of the old fantasy is is all black and white. It's sort of not, but um, it's sort of it's clearly what he was drawn to. Mm-hmm. Or, anyway, uh, so the question is, when do you set your story? Because you've got first age, second age, third age, and fourth age. Now, I said there was stuff before the first stage, but that's basically just gods and angels hanging out, making the world. So I wouldn't say there's anything for, like, 
players to do during that time period. Well, unless you're unless you're just saying in like Dungeon World or something, then then it can be can make you can like. Well, I mean, yeah, you could play like yeah. Dawn of Worlds from that time point with like Middle Earth, where like okay, you get to be this one of the Valar, and I'll be Morgoth. But then, why are you bothering to do like Middle Earth at all? Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, sure, that makes sense. Yeah. Um. So the the time period. Um, I mean, there's definitely tons of choices there, and it depends on kind of the scale you want to do, like the first age everyone's running around as like level 20 characters or something um yeah and the third age i believe there's been a few comparisons between that like the power level for what like someone like aragorn is and he's basically like level five or six right and gandalf who's probably the most powerful is like from a different age basically uh yeah, yeah, he's from the the second age, I think. Um, or, yeah, yeah, he is. That's right. Almost all the most powerful people are basically from the previous age. Yeah, and even then, he's like not actually that powerful a wizard. Like, what does he cast? Like light and shield. Yeah, I mean, you you take out a Balrog, but uh, yeah, um, but does he do it with magic or with a big sword? <laughs> fair enough. Not, maybe, he's, maybe he's just like a paladin. Yeah, he's he's much more like a, a fighter class, honestly. Like he's usually like I mean in the movies he's using like a a stick and a sword, so he's like fighting with two weapons. Um I think he smites the Balrog, so sure he could be a paladin and um he casts light, shield, and the the pine cones he like sets on fire to throw at the orcs and the hobbit. Yeah. Um, which is probably more of a druid spell, but it, you know, he, like his spell casting is like first and second level spells for how D and D sets the power level. So that means he's right. like a fourth level caster at best. At least for what we see of him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is also a difference in power level between the, the angels. So, uh, Gandalf and Sauron are both like the same level of angel called a Maiar. Um, but obviously vastly different in what they're capable of doing. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I tend to think super high level D&D doesn't work that well. Um, so I think you want to go like I think your best bet's probably going to be, at least as a player, um, I also want to say third or even fourth age is kind of where you, at least for a starting of a campaign, is where you're going to want to set yourself. Um, the, the first age is just kind of taking out Balrogs left and right. Um, yeah, I'd agree. The first age, it feels like it's hard to, to pick something that would work. Um, I mean, in other parts of this is that you're somewhat restricted by, okay, so you do the first stage, are you going to play, like, the named characters in it? Like, there's Feanor, and, like, he has two friends that help him try to steal one of the Silmarils, I think, is one of the stories that happens. Um, so they're, they're trying to steal, like, this shiny gem thing that's made of right. the, sort of the sun's light, so it's super powerful. I'm oversimplifying. Um... Uh, and they get it, but his two friends die in the process. So, like, that, that's an adventure. Um, you know, like, you could you could design an adventure where they're trying to get all three back during the first age. Uh, but sure. inevitably, you lead to something that is no longer Lord of the Rings because you've changed what happened. I mean, it's fine. I just I just don't know. I think it'd be a little weird to play in the first stage. Yeah, um, especially since like you, I usually feel like when you're picking a a campaign setting that's established like Lord of the Rings with like a specific story that occurs in the third age, you usually want to be as close to that as possible. I feel like you want that. Like that's Lord. Like fundamentally, like I understand that. Like those people have read. Like yeah, like, that is. Yeah, like when I when I get into Lord of the Rings, I don't want to play like 
all these background characters from the Silmarillion. I want to play something where I get to like, I don't know, like Aragorn assigns me a quest after because he's now king of Gondor. I was thinking a good period would be like an Aragorn quest before the um, Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship, or something. Yeah, yeah, you could do that too. Like um, he's he's a, a ranger for what like sixty years or something before he he joins up with the the fellowship, right? So you could even have like, someone play Aragorn during that period and as like a first level ranger, and there's nothing right, wrong with it. Um. So yeah, that that's a good time period, um, which is basically set between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, um. Which gets me to the thing I wanted to bring up. That's basically what the Shadow of Mordor games are about. You play a ranger, and the games are set, the video games are set between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> um. So, yeah, it's a great setting. It's it's one. It's a great choice for a time setting, and it's the one that was used for a official product that was created. Um, what would you want to do as a player in that that setting? I mean, not really about subtlety. To me, it's like maybe you're um you're doing something to try and like make mortar a little weaker, even though obviously you're not going to stop it. So like you um um. I don't know, maybe you're trying to stop like some of the Easterlings from defecting or something. I don't know. Something like that. Or you're um, trying to get a little sooner. I mean, during about, that um, period, there's like orcs that are attacking Gondor like every couple years or something. Right, so maybe you're, you're doing something for those wars. That feels to me like the natural sort of trying to set up the 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 um the non um Sauron forces in a better position for when the fellowship starts sort of that's mm-hmm. that's sort of what I would want to do like, I guess this is a little bit um t- to me it's like if you're gonna play the Lord of the Rings you have to play the Lord of the Rings and like that sort of fits it um you can also just like do the um, some sort of fellowship type thing, although maybe you maybe you start the campaign like between after the Hobbit, and you sort of get to the Lord of the Rings, and you're like you have like a different fellowship or something. Yeah. So instead of Aragorn and Boromir show up, it's your guy, and you know the other the other players show up, and they become Gimli and Boromir and Aragorn, right? Um, and Legolas. Um. Now, I, I kind of felt like the actually role-playing the Lord of the Rings story is a bit difficult if you do that angle for it. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, I mean, just following the plot, um, for one thing, it's like, okay, everyone sort of knows what's going to happen. No, I think you just have to, you have to, like, you have to, it's only interesting if, like, the plot changes, like, you choose a different tack. Well, I mean, and the road that they take does change. Like initially they're going to go by Isengard and then they, they can't go that way. So then they try going over the mountains and they can't go that way. So then they go through the mines. Like it's, it's their third choice at that point. Right. Well, Um, maybe you do get over the mountains. Like that's, I don't know. Um, And you know, you can take other ways like that. Maybe they, maybe they stay in Lothlorien and try and protect the ring there. So then they have to deal with like an orc attack or something like there's all sorts of choices you could make besides just destroying the ring. Um, but what I, what I meant isn't like the, you're that the actual story removes player agency because the players can make different choices. I was going to say that the ring removes player agency. Like its whole concept is that it's turning you into an agent of Sauron. Right. So you kind of have to just destroy it fundamentally. Yeah. Well, but like who, whichever player becomes the, the ring bearer, um, has to basically role, think, role play and deal with their losing agency for their character. I think it works better if the ring bearer is an NPC, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, 
I just feel like that almost ends up being less interesting, but I guess it's possible. Um, you definitely have to have Frodo not leave the Fellowship if that's the angle you're going for, I think. I think, I mean, you can't really long-term split the party. Like, it doesn't doesn't work. Well, I mean, like, I mean, so if you imagine the party is Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, um, then yeah. splitting the party then works fine because they have a different objective that they decide to go for. But how are you actually playing the session out is my question. Like, Well, and that, that's the thing. Like, okay, so... Uh, you know, Mary and Pippin get kidnapped and Frodo and right. Sam go off in their, uh, their own direction. What does yeah. the party choose to do? Uh, well, you know, in the story, they go after Mary and Pippin, but the PCs could easily choose to go after Sam and Frodo. Um, and then th- right, or, that's what happens and the DM rolls with it. And, you know, you, you have... Right, a- or they just... I don't know. Go straight to Gondor or something. Yeah, yeah. Um... um in some ways, I think it's more interesting if the party doesn't have the ring. I think, it, I think you're right. It's sort of yeah, like the the ho- the Hobbit. I feel like you could work pretty well as just like you're not taking away player agency by doing the ring. You're just like going and getting some treasure and killing a dragon. It's cool. I mean, the the Hobbit does. You just have to play the Hobbit. I think on its own terms, the ring's just literally an invisibility ring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't that doesn't do anything special, and it's also possible that like. You might not even find it. Yeah. Like I think, for what what happens to Bilbo? He like falls down a hole. Well, he's running away from the goblins. So like, and they get in the cave. Like the whole thing. Like they probably would. You probably wouldn't find the ring. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's like a an extra room that like uh, realistically you don't end up there. Like he gets knocked unconscious and ends up there. It almost looks like the DM said, "Oh, okay, so they have to leave you, but I don't want to kill your character, so." You end up in a hole, and you find an invisibility ring, so you can sneak past all the goblins and get out of the mountains. Okay, yeah, that works. Okay, we're good. <laughs> it's like, uh, I mean, you tell that story, and so like, someone's gonna be like, "Oh yeah, the DM just didn't want to kill you, so they gave you a magic ring, man." <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and then you. Then he retcon then the DM retcon the ring into being important, which is actually what Tolkien did, basically. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I, I feel like doing something in between is probably the best idea because then you ha- you can still have those touch points of Aragorn and Gandalf, Legolas, Gimli. Um, so all of these characters that we like can still be present in the story, and the players can even play them. But you don't have to deal with the ring. Um but you could still have an important object like that because there are other rings. Right. Um, so the the Dwarven rings are easy examples. There's seven of those. Tolkien said four of them were destroyed by dragons, so you're still you're left with three if you want to keep it canon for those. Um, sure. But still, like that's three cool th- three cool stories you can have. Um, the other would be the the nine rings for the human kings. Um, right. It's never said that the wraiths are still wearing them. Uh, basically, they could have been corrupted by the rings and then had them taken away, and Sauron could be like trying to create nine more or something. Or well, we just keep handing the rings out, like less efficiently corrupted. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, so it takes like two thousand years to turn someone into a ring wraith. So, you know, he took them off of those guys put them on to nine other guys and they're about to turn into ring wraiths and you need to, you know, stop them before they fully convert so that there's not the 18 instead of the nine that are hunting the fellowship. And so, you know, that's, that's a campaign idea right there. Um, and Gandalf also mentions in the Hobbit that there are, there are many rings. Um, so he, he notices that Bilbo has this ring that turns him invisible but he doesn't immediately think, "Oh, that must be the One Ring," because that one turns you invisible. So there's that'd be a fun that'd be a fun DM idea. You play like you have like you just like you have it, but you give them like an invisibility ring. Yeah. They think it's like the One Ring. You just like never tell the players that anything like that. And it just turns out like Gandalf shows up and he's like, "I don't think this is anything." I mean, or you give them a second invisibility ring. Yeah, if you wanted to do that as sort of more canon, you could do that during the the earlier part of the Third Age. 
because Isildur gets it and then he loses it and eventually Smeagol finds it. But, you know, there's a lot of time in between that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think like 2,500 years, something like that. So, yeah, yeah, you could easily have that story. But then you're, you're moving yourself further away from those touchstones I was talking about. Yeah. So then all you have is like Elrond, Galadriel, and Gandalf. Um, or whatever heir of Isildur is ruling during that time. Um, so yeah, my, my thinking was that you want to focus on the rings of power as like the evil objects, the, the MacGuffins. Sure. Um, and there's clear options for ones that exist. And, you know, you, you have to use a little bit of DM freedom to make that work. Like the rings are explicitly called out as being on the right's fingers, but I mean, they, they probably still are there. I mean, you could get the dwarven rings or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but then Tolkien's canon is that they're the dwarven kings have them and they're just not doing anything with them because the rings corrupt them and make it so they don't want to do anything. Right. That'll work. Yeah. yeah. Um, what type of uh, system what do you think you would use for... For, I, think uh, you use D&D. I think you use D&D, to be honest. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's that's the obvious choice, because D&D is almost designed with Lord of the Rings in I mean, that's, mind. That's what it's for. Basically, you play, like... You don't, people, you don't like people to get too high level. Basically, you're, like, it's, I don't know. Like, there's a whole class based on Herring Run. I, I don't know what you want me to tell you. <laughs> well, so there was a Lord of the Rings system that was made. Um, More than one, I believe, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there was one that was made in response to the movies coming out, I suppose I should say. Um, and I've played it, and it's um, it's got some balance issues. Um, and not the actual Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, okay. So, th- th- I mean, this is true for every system that tries to to blend like narrative stuff and combat stuff while still keeping it like a fairly crunchy system. Um, where okay, so you can focus on someone who's like good at cooking and finding tracks and making your way through a you know a, a thick forest or something like that or you can make a guy that can swing a sword really quickly and hit hit a bunch of times on your turn um right and it's got this issue where like you know th- their skill set doesn't really overlap you know so whenever there's a bunch of orcs that attack Merry and Pippin just fucking run away because they're useless. Right. Um, and then Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas show up and do all the fighting. Um, but, uh, you know, if you want to talk to the Ents and tell them what to do, Gimli is, again, fucking useless because he's got his axe up and the trees don't trust him with the axe. Right. Um, so the that's a big weakness in the the official Lord of the Rings system that was designed my god 20 years ago Um, uh, is that it you end up with having to make those kind of choices for your your characters Um, and I think it gets lessened later on like when you're not just having a sort of it it doesn't use levels but let's just say first level character Um, because then you're able to get more of those like additional skills so you don't have someone who's just a fighter um, which is also why Legolas is the, the best party member because he's the oldest so he has the most skills I don't I don't know that well also because elves are just broken yeah I mean a part of that it's like I say like I say like I mean you can blame the rule system but it's like like God, it's how the world was like that's how Tolkien wrote it yeah yeah um, <laughs> I mean like so I just don't know if that Oh. Yeah, like I, yeah, you know, like D and D tries to make the the races fairly balanced. I would say humans are a little bit better because you get more freedom of choice, but it, they're they're mostly balanced. Yeah. Um, official Lord of the Rings setting, absolutely not. Play an elf. <laughs> the the reason to not play an elf is because you you wanna have a reason want to have a story reason not to. Yeah. Or I if mean, you're if you're going to be a ring bearer, then you should be a hobbit because they have some resistance to the, the one ring. <laughs> this is the sort of problem with the Lord of the Rings. It's just isn't like it's just not balanced. Um, yeah, and it's not. And if you're unbalanced level, you miss. Which I think your best bet is like you're like I don't know. You're all humans and in the like third age between the hobbit and 
fellowship, then you kind of you have a balanced party. But fundamentally, like, it's just not balanced. Um, I mean, you you the, can make the elves are better. The the humans who are nobles are better. Like, it is what it is. Well, you you can make a dwarf and a human that are about, you can imagine them being about the same capability. Um, who dwarves and humans? Sure. Um. And for an elf that's actually like the same capability as humans and dwarves, um, I think you kind of have to imagine them being a very weak elf, elf or the humans and dwarves being very strong for it to still match with what the the setting material is telling you. Or you can just kind of suspend your disbelief a little bit and, and roll with it. Yeah, I mean, those are definitely all options. Um, or... You you use a more narrative story. Um, so dungeon world like um, like yeah, Leg- Legolas basically never misses an orc with his arrows when he's shooting his bow. Um, and dungeon world works pretty well for that because you know you have the the critical success where like he kills a bunch of orcs or the non-critical success where he kills a few orcs, but then more show up. Yeah. Um, so then he's still hitting every, every arrow he fires is a hit, but you know, it just has less narrative significance. So he can still feel really cool, even though the, effect on the situation is lessened because of the way the system works. And that, that's, the, I think, probably the right way to do it. Although, um, it's tricky because a lot of times you're trying to build a, um, a story in um, uh, and Dungeon World, but you're not going to build a better story than Lord of the Rings, so I don't know what you're, what you're doing at some level. Um, well, I'm, I mean, Lord of the Rings is a good story for reading, but that's not right. that's not what we're doing. So, yeah, that makes sense. Now, I think we talked about the stuff I wanted to talk about for the setting mostly. Did you have anything you wanted to cover? Um, yeah, I was just gonna say one thing that struck me rereading it is like it it um it's like the only um. It's like one of the very few fictional um, things that pretty clearly represents um, World War One, uh, with both um, uh, with um, Mordor sort of being the Psalm, and then I think the Dead Marshes being uh, Thirty or Passchendaele. Um, uh, and it's just, it's just like, it was just, it was just impressive. That's really all I wanted to bring up. Um, so if you're looking for, if you want to do that, if for some reason you want to do, um, like a World War One reference, then maybe you can draw something from Lord of the Rings, because it's, it's obviously very hard to reference World War One um, because nothing, uh, happens. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's exaggeration, but if you're talking about the battles, usually... Uh, a bunch of people die and nothing happens. So, um, yeah. no, I, I definitely agree with that. When you mentioned the third debris, um, thirty, it's better known as Passchendaele. That's probably what yeah, Tolkien was Passchendaele. Um, and I, I looked at like the the pictures of the battlefield afterwards, and it's like, oh yeah, that's that's definitely the Dead Marshes. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, um, and um, even the like, if for Tolkien's like version of that that's where there was a big battle and there's a bunch of like ghosts in the marsh um, right so um, yeah that's very much like seems inspired by that he wasn't at that battle but I'm sure he knew people that were yeah well it was like the, I believe it was the bloodiest battle of the war for the British not mm-hmm. um, for it wasn't the bloodiest obviously but um, yeah, uh, I looked at the casualty numbers and the British one in three of them died Um. Yeah. Not great. Yeah. Um. That would, that would be one in three of the British that participated in that battle were killed by it. And they won. Wow. What great. What a great Pyrrhic victory. Yeah. 
It's, um... Well, I mean... Uh, at some level, like, you're just trying to... Like, they lost about the same number as the Germans, and they had more, so, like, in a sense, like... Like, it wasn't a Pyrrhic victory. Like, they could afford to keep winning those battles. Yeah, winning those I mean, battles. Like, it's just, like, sort of sad. <laughs> like, yes. World War One was definitely not as much a test of, like, your ability to win battles, but your ability to keep your population motivated to continue the war. Um, they... I mean, most... Yeah, well, Russia failed on that front, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, mostly the other countries and empires and whatnot didn't um, just like just kind of ran out of like ran out of guys like it's um, I think the French suffered the worst but like um, yeah the Germans at the end of the war were recruiting 13 year olds yeah and then they ran it back in World War um World War Two. Yeah. And <laughs> this is after like what four years of war as well. So these are these are kids that would have been nine when the war started or eight. Yeah, I mean that's that's why they um like that's why they surrendered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um But yes, it is um it is interesting with how much death happened in the World Wars to look at like sort of the population effects afterwards for like yeah, you look at the population of of Germany, and it's still having echoes of the amount of death that occurred during World War One. Uh, yeah, I mean you, um, I mean, I, and and again, I believe France suffered even a higher um, portion of um, uh, they lost one point four million, um, and I think, um. I'm sure what the population of France was at the time, but I think it was higher than that was more than for Germany. Um, I, I just looked it up. So yeah, 1.6 million dead. Um, yeah, six million casualties, which represented 71 percent of the combatants. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I mean it's um, the population was. Um, about forty million in um, nineteen uh, uh, four, fourteen, which um, so basically uh, they lost like. Uh, All right, um, so they basically drafted everyone that was of eligible age, and right. had a seventy percent casualty rate. Right, um, and it. I mean, you still see the population. I don't know how much you see them now, but you, even in going into World War Two, like obviously because those are sort of the people that would have been having children but they were dead um mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so um yeah it's interesting that the i think the wounded casualty rate is probably higher for that um as well because of the the different types of weapons that were used yeah um we're getting a little bit of a tangent here how do we bring it back to, to Tolkien? Um, what i'm saying is that um if you if you want to represent well, uh, we want to bring in some mustard. We want to bring in some mustard gas into our our. <laughs> right. Our, you want to represent Passchendaele in in fiction. The Dead Marshes are a good place to start. Oh. I I think using like some sort of malevolent gas is not a bad idea. For like you were talking about weakening Mordor, so maybe Mordor has some sort of gas weapon that the party has to to take away and defeat. Right, like the orcs are immune to it because they're they're ugly monsters, but right. humans are hacking and dying. Um, so you have to like develop some sort of yes, antidote for it, so you can get into like the production factory and destroy it. Um, and along the way, like Gandalf is helping you because that's Gandalf's job. Um, and like you have to sneak through Shelob's lair to get into Mordor to destroy the factory and you know that's that's a campaign idea right there yeah that, there you go there's your campaign you're trying to shut down um Shelob's factory no um <laughs> sorry factory um yeah maybe maybe the mustard gas is made from Shelob's farts who knows we don't know we don't know that's that's your decision as a DM yeah, yeah. just <laughs> stop feeding her orcs and she stops farting they're very, very gassy. <laughs> oh god, is this the plot of this campaign that we kidnap hobbits and feed them to Sheila? <laughs> uh, 
This is real dark, real fast. I won't say no. <laughs> Got to give her something tasty that's better than an orc, but doesn't give her gas. So, um... Anyway, that's just one of the great campaign ideas you can get from from setting the stage. Um... Oh man, uh, yeah. Uh, anything else you wanna you wanna talk Not about? Really? Not really. Okay. Yeah. Um, let me think. Uh, there was another idea I had. Is that there's um, in uh, in Tolkien's writing he had five wizards. Um, so we know like Gandalf and Saruman um, from the books, and Radagast, Radagast shows up in the Hobbit. Um, movies and in the Silmarillion. Um, but there's these two other wizards, the blue wizards that uh, just sort of screw off and Tolkien never wrote what they were doing. Um, so that that's another area where you can have like characters that are like Gandalf, but a DM could have more like freedom in what they're writing. Sure. Um, so it's the... Tolkien's writing is all about the lands of the West, Gondor, Rohan, Hobbitland, Mirkwood. Um, but if you look at the map, like it's not just sea on the eastern part. There's you know other stuff in that direction. Sure. And you can maybe it's the Hobbit. It's the Great Hobbit Empire. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, um, or or it could be you know rat people or whatever. <laughs> I mean, you rat can bring people? in. Uh, yeah, you could bring in other races from. D and D, like uh, I don't know if you want to bring in rat people, but you could bring in like uh, tieflings uh, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, tieflings. Yeah, they're they're popular. So yeah, you can bring in some tieflings. You know, they're they're like orcs that became good or something. I don't know. You 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 can work it out, and you can have like a whole nation of those people over there, and the two wizards are over there doing something about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I, I think I'm I'm talked on on it for now. So you wanna you wanna call here? Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me on the inaugural podcast. All right. Cool. Thanks for coming. <laughs>